Part One, Chapter Three of Tom Brown's School Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Icy Jumbo. Tom Brown's School Days by Thomas Hughes. Part One, Chapter Three Sundry Wars and Alliances. Poor old Benji. The rheumatiz has much to answer for all through English countrysides, but it never played a scurvier trick than in laying thee by the heels when thou wast yet in a green old age. The enemy, which had long been carrying on a sort of border warfare, and trying his strength against Benji's on the battlefield of his hands and legs, now, mustering all his forces, began laying siege to the citadel, and overrunning the whole country. Benji was seized in the back and loins, and though he made strong and brave fight, it was soon clear enough that all which could be beaten of poor old Benji would have to give in before long. It was as much as he could do now, with the help of his big stick and frequent stops, to hobble down to the canal with Master Tom, and bait his hook for him, and sit and watch his angling, telling him quaint old country stories. And when Tom had no sport, and detecting a rat some hundred yards or so off along the bank, would rush off with Toby the turnspit terrier, his other faithful companion, in bootless pursuit. He might have tumbled in and been drowned twenty times over before Benji could have got near him. Cheery and unmindful of himself, as Benji was, this loss of locomotive power bothered him greatly. He had got a new object in his old age, and was just beginning to think himself useful again in the world. He feared much, too, lest Master Tom should fall back again into the hands of charity and the women. So he tried everything he could think of to get set up. He even went an expedition to the dwelling of one of those queer mortals who, say what we will, and reason how we will, do cure simple people of diseases of one kind or another without the aid of physic, and so get to themselves the reputation of using charms, and inspire for themselves and their dwellings great respect, not to say fear, amongst a simple folk such as the dwellers in the Vale of the White Horse. Where this power, or whatever else it may be, descends upon the shoulders of a man whose ways are not straight, he becomes a nuisance to the neighbourhood, a receiver of stolen goods, giver of love potions, and deceiver of silly women, the avowed enemy of law and order, of justices of the peace, head-boroughs and gamekeepers. Such a man, in fact, as was recently caught tripping, and deservedly dealt with by the Leeds justices, for seducing a girl who had come to him to get back a faithless lover, and has been convicted of bigamy since then. Sometimes, however, they are of quite a different stamp. Men who pretend to nothing, and are with difficulty persuaded to exercise their occult arts in the simplest cases. Of this latter sort was old Farmer Ives, as he was called, the wise man to whom Benji resorted, taking Tom with him as usual, in the early spring of the year next after the feast described in the last chapter. Why he was called Farmer I cannot say, unless it be that he was the owner of a cow, a pig or two, and some poultry, which he maintained on about an acre of land enclosed from the middle of a wild common, on which probably his father had squatted before lords of manors looked as keenly after their rights as they do now. Here he had lived no one knew how long, a solitary man. 
It was often rumoured that he was to be turned out and his cottage pulled down, but somehow it never came to pass, and his pigs and cow went grazing on the common, and his geese hissed at the passing children and at the heels of the horse of my lord's steward, who often rode by with a covetous eye on the enclosure still unmolested. His dwelling was some miles from our village, so Benji, who was half ashamed of his errand, and wholly unable to walk there, had to exercise much ingenuity to get the means of transporting himself and Tom thither without exciting suspicion. However, one fine May morning he managed to borrow the old blind pony of our friend the publican, and Tom persuaded Madame Brown to give him a holiday to spend with old Benji, and to lend them the squire's light cart, stored with bread and cold meat and a bottle of ale. And so the two in high glee started behind old Dobbin, and jogged along the deep-rutted, plashy roads, which had not been mended after their winter's wear, towards the dwelling of the wizard. About noon they passed the gate which opened on to the large common, and old Dobbin toiled slowly up the hill, while Benji pointed out a little deep dingle on the left, out of which welled a tiny stream. As they crept up the hill, the tops of a few birch-trees came in sight, and blue smoke curling up through their delicate light boughs, and then the little white thatched home, an enclosed ground of farmer Ives, lying cradled in the dingle, with the gay gorse common rising behind and on both sides, while in front, after traversing a gentle slope, the eye might travel for miles and miles over the rich vale. They now left the main road, and struck into a green track over the common, marked lightly with wheel and horseshoe, which led down into the dingle, and stopped at the rough gate of farmer Ives. Here they found the farmer, an iron-grey old man, with a bushy eyebrow and strong aquiline nose, busied in one of his vocations. He was a horse and cow doctor, and was tending a sick beast which had been sent up to be cured. Benji hailed him as an old friend, and he returned the greeting cordially enough, looking, however, hard for a moment, both at Benji and Tom, to see whether there was more in their visit than appeared at first sight. It was a work of some difficulty and danger for Benji to reach the ground, which, however, he managed to do without mishap. And then he devoted himself to unharnessing Dobbin and turning him out for a graze, a run one could not say of that virtuous steed, on the common. This done, he extricated the cold provisions from the cart, and they entered the farmer's wicket, and he, shutting up the knife with which he was taking maggots out of the cow's back and sides, accompanied them towards the cottage. A big old lurcher got up slowly from the door-stone, stretching first one hind leg and then the other, and taking Tom's caresses and the presence of Toby, who kept, however, at a respectful distance, with equal indifference. "'As we come to pay ye a visit. I've a been long-minded to do it for old sake's sake, only I vines I won't get abouts now as I used to it. I be so plaguy bad with the rheumatism in my back. Benji paused, in hopes of drawing the farmer at once on the subject of his ailments, without further direct application. Ah, I see as you bain't quite so lissom as you was, replied the farmer, with a grim smile, as he lifted the latch of his door. We bain't so young as we was, nother on us, was luck. The farmer's cottage was very like those of the better class of peasantry in general. A snug chimney-corner with two seats, and a small carpet on the hearth, 
an old flint gun, and a pair of spurs over the fireplace, a dresser with shelves on which some bright pewter plates and crockery ware were arranged, an old walnut table, a few chairs and settles, some framed samplers, and an old print or two, and a bookcase with some dozen volumes on the walls, a rack with flitches of bacon, and other stores fastened to the ceiling, and you have the best part of the furniture. No sign of occult art is to be seen, unless the bundles of dried herbs hanging to the rack and in the ingle and the row of labelled files on one of the shelves betoken it. Tom played about with some kittens who occupied the hearth, and with a goat who walked demurely in at the open door, while their host and Benji spread the table for dinner, and was soon engaged in conflict with the cold meat, to which he did much honour. The two old men's talk was of old comrades and their deeds, mute inglorious Miltons of the Vale, and of the doings thirty years back, which didn't interest him much, except when they spoke of the making of the canal, and then indeed he began to listen with all his ears, and learned, to his no small wonder, that his dear and wonderful canal had not been there always, was not in fact so old as Benji or Farmer Ives, which caused a strange commotion in his small brain. After dinner, Benji called attention to a wart which Tom had on the knuckles of his hand, and which the family doctor had been trying his skill on without success, and begged the farmer to charm it away. Farmer Ives looked at it, muttered something or another over it, and cut some notches in a short stick, which he handed to Benji, giving him instructions for cutting it down on certain days, and cautioning Tom not to meddle with the wart for a fortnight and then they strolled out and sat on a bench in the sun with their pipes, and the pigs came up and grunted sociably, and let Tom scratch them, and the farmer, seeing how he liked animals, stood up and held his arms in the air, and gave a call, which brought a flock of pigeons wheeling and dashing through the birch-trees. They settled down in clusters on the farmer's arms and shoulders, making love to him, and scrambling over one another's backs to get to his face, and then he threw them all off, and they fluttered about close by, and lighted on him again and again when he held up his arms. All the creatures about the place were clean and fearless, quite unlike their relations elsewhere, and Tom begged to be taught how to make all the pigs and cows and poultry in our village tame, at which the farmer only gave one of his grim chuckles. It wasn't until they were just ready to go, and old Dobbin was harnessed, that Benji broached the subject of his rheumatism again, detailing his symptoms one by one. Poor old boy! He hoped the farmer could charm it away as easily as he could Tom's wart, and was ready with equal faith to put another notched stick into his other pocket for the cure of his own ailments. The physician shook his head, but nevertheless produced a bottle and handed it to Benji, with instructions for use. "'Not as it'll do much good. Leastways I be afeard not.' "'shading his eyes with his hand "'and looking up at them in the cart. "'There's only one thing as I knows on "'as'll cure old folks like you and I "'or the rheumatiz.' "'What be that then, farmer?' inquired Benji. "'Churchyard mould,' said the old iron-grey man, "'with another chuckle. "'And so they said their good-byes "'and went their ways home. "'Tom's wart was gone in a fortnight, "'but not so Benji's rheumatism, "'which laid him by the heels more and more.' And though Tom still spent many an hour with him, as he sat on a bench in the sunshine, or by the chimney-corner when it was cold, he soon had to seek elsewhere for his regular companions. 
Tom had been accustomed often to accompany his mother in her visits to the cottages, and had thereby made acquaintance with many of the village boys of his own age. There was Job Rudkin, son of widow Rudkin, the most bustling woman in the parish. How she could ever have had such a stolid boy as Job for a child must always remain a mystery. The first time Tom went to their cottage with his mother, Job was not indoors, but he entered soon after, and stood with both hands in his pockets, staring at Tom. Widow Rudkin, who would have had to cross Madam to get at young Hopeful, a breach of good manners of which she was wholly incapable, began a series of pantomime signs, which only puzzled him, and at last, unable to contain herself longer, burst out with, "'Job! Job! Where's thy cap?' "'What? Beant ye on my head, mother?' replied Job, slowly extricating one hand from a pocket, and feeling for the article in question, which he found on his head, sure enough, and left there, to his mother's horror and Tom's great delight. Then there was poor Jacob Dodson, the half-witted boy, who ambled about cheerfully, undertaking messages and little helpful odds and ends for everyone, which, however, poor Jacob always managed hopelessly to embrangle. Everything came to pieces in his hands, and nothing would stop in his head. They nicknamed him Jacob Doodlecalf. But above all there was Harry Winburn, the quickest and best boy in the parish. He might be a year older than Tom, but was very little bigger, and he was the Crichton of our village boys. He could wrestle and climb and run better than all the rest, and learned all that the schoolmaster could teach him faster than that worthy at all liked. He was a boy to be proud of, with his curly brown hair, keen grey eye, straight active figure, and little ears and hands and feet, as fine as a lord's, as Charity remarked to Tom one day, talking as usual great nonsense. Lord's hands and ears and feet are just as ugly as other folks when they are children, as any one may convince himself if he likes to look. Tight boots and gloves, and doing nothing with them, I allow, make a difference by the time they are twenty. Now that Benji was laid on the shelf, and his young brothers were still under petticoat government, Tom, in search of companions, began to cultivate the village boys generally more and more. Squire Brown, be it said, was a true blue Tory to the backbone, and believed honestly that the powers which be were ordained of God, and that loyalty and steadfast obedience were men's first duties. Whether it were in consequence, or in spite of his political creed, I do not mean to give an opinion, though I have one, but certain it is that he held therewith diverse social principles not generally supposed to be true blue in colour. Foremost of these, and the one which the squire loved to propound above all others, was the belief that a man is to be valued wholly and solely for that which is in himself, for that which stands up in the four fleshy walls of him, apart from clothes, rank, fortune, and all externals whatsoever, which belief I take to be a wholesome corrective of all political opinions, and if held sincerely, to make all opinions equally harmless, whether they be blue, red, or green. As a necessary corollary to this belief, Squire Brown held further that it didn't matter a straw whether his son associated with Lord's sons or Ploughman's sons, provided they were brave and honest. He himself had played football and gone bird-nesting with the farmers whom he met at Vestry, and the labourers who tilled their fields, and so had his father and grandfather with their progenitors. So he encouraged Tom in his intimacy with the boys of the village, and forwarded it by all means in his power, and gave them the run of a close for a playground, 
and provided bats and balls and a football for their sports. Our village was blessed, amongst other things, with a well-endowed school. The building stood by itself, apart from the master's house, on an angle of ground where three roads met, an old grey stone building with a steep roof and mullioned windows. On one of the opposite angles stood Squire Brown's stables and kennel, with their backs to the road, over which towered a great elm-tree. On the third stood the village carpenter and wheelwright's large open shop, and his house and the schoolmaster's, with long low eaves, under which the swallows built by scores. The moment Tom's lessons were over, he would now get him down to this corner by the stables, and watch till the boys came out of school. He prevailed on the groom to cut notches for him in the bark of the elm, so that he could climb into the lower branches, and there he would sit, watching the school door, and speculating on the possibility of turning the elm into a dwelling-place for himself and friends, after the manner of the Swiss family Robinson. But the school hours were long, and Tom's patience short, so that he soon began to descend into the street, and go and peep in at the school door and the wheelwright's shop, and look out for something to while away the time. Now the wheelwright was a choleric man, and one fine afternoon, returning from a short absence, found Tom occupied with one of his pet adzes, the edge of which was fast vanishing under our hero's care. A speedy flight saved Tom from all but one sound cuff on the ears, but he resented this unjustifiable interruption of his first essays at carpentering, and still more the further proceedings of the wheelwright, who cut a switch and hung it over the door of his workshop, threatening to use it upon Tom if he came within twenty yards of his gate. So Tom, to retaliate, commenced a war upon the swallows who dwelt under the wheelwright's eaves, whom he harassed with sticks and stones, and being fleeter of foot than his enemy, escaped all punishment, and kept him in perpetual anger. Moreover, his presence about the school door began to incense the master, as the boys in that neighbourhood neglected their lessons in consequence and more than once he issued into the porch, rod in hand, just as Tom beat a hasty retreat. And he and the wheelwright, laying their heads together, resolved to acquaint the squire with Tom's afternoon occupations. But in order to do it with effect, determined to take him captive and lead him away to judgment, fresh from his evil doings. This they would have found some difficulty in doing, had Tom continued the war single-handed, or rather single-footed, for he would have taken to the deepest part of Pebbly Brook to escape them. But like other active powers, he was ruined by his alliances. Poor Jacob Doodlecalf could not go to the school with the other boys, and one fine afternoon, about three o'clock, the school broke up at four, Tom found him ambling about the street, and pressed him into a visit to the school porch. Jacob, always ready to do what he was asked, consented, and the two stole down to the school together. Tom first reconnoitred the wheelwright's shop, and seeing no signs of activity, thought all safe in that quarter, and ordered at once an advance of all his troops upon the school porch. The door of the school was ajar, and the boys seated on the nearest bench at once recognised and opened a correspondence with the invaders. Tom, waxing bold, kept putting his head into the school, and making faces at the master when his back was turned. Poor Jacob, not in the least comprehending the situation, and in high glee at finding himself so near the school, which he had never been allowed to enter, suddenly in a fit of enthusiasm, pushed by Tom, and ambling three steps into the school, stood there, 
looking round him and nodding with a self-approving smile. The master, who was stooping over a boy's slate, with his back to the door, became aware of something unusual, and turned quickly round. Tom rushed at Jacob and began dragging him back by his smock-frock, and the master made at them, scattering forms and boys in his career. Even now they might have escaped, but that in the porch, barring retreat, appeared the crafty wheelwright, who had been watching all their proceedings. So they were seized, the school dismissed, and Tom and Jacob led away to Squire Brown as lawful prize, the boys following to the gate in groups, and speculating on the result. The squire was very angry at first, but the interview, by Tom's pleading, ended in a compromise. Tom was not to go near the school till three o'clock, and only then if he had done his own lessons well, in which case he was to be the bearer of a note to the master from Squire Brown, and the master agreed in such case to release ten or twelve of the best boys an hour before the time of breaking up, to go off and play in the close. The wheelwright's adzes and swallows were to be for ever respected, and that hero and the master withdrew to the servants' hall to drink the squire's health, well satisfied with their day's work. The second act of Tom's life may now be said to have begun. The war of independence had been over for some time. None of the women now, not even his mother's maid, dared offer to help him in dressing or washing. Between ourselves, he had often at first to run to Benji in an unfinished state of toilet. Charity and the rest of them seemed to take a delight in putting impossible buttons and ties in the middle of his back. But he would have gone without nether integuments altogether sooner than have had recourse to female valeting. He had a room to himself, and his father gave him sixpence a week pocket money. All this he had achieved by Benji's advice and assistance. But now he had conquered another step in life, the step which all real boys so longed to make. He had got amongst his equals in age and strength, and could measure himself with other boys. He lived with those whose pursuits and wishes and ways were the same in kind as his own. The little governess who had lately been installed in the house found her work grow wondrously easy, for Tom slaved at his lessons in order to make sure of his note to the schoolmaster. So there were very few days in the week in which Tom and the village boys were not playing in their close by three o'clock. Prisoner's base, rounders, high cockalorum, cricket, football, he was soon initiated into the delights of them all, and though most of the boys were older than himself, he managed to hold his own very well. He was naturally active and strong, and quick of eye and hand, and had the advantage of light shoes and well-fitting dress, so that in a short time he could run and jump and climb with any of them. They generally finished their regular games half an hour or so before tea-time, and then began trials of skill and strength in many ways. Some of them would catch the Shetland pony who was turned out in the field, and get two or three together on his back, and the little rogue, enjoying the fun, would gallop off for fifty yards, and then turn round, or stop short and shoot them onto the turf, and then graze quietly on till he felt another load. Others played at peg-top or marbles, while a few of the bigger ones stood up for a bout at wrestling. Tom at first only looked on at this pastime, but it had peculiar attractions for him, and he could not long keep out of it. Elbow and collar wrestling, as practised in the western counties, was, next to backswording, the way to fame for the youth of the Vale, and all the boys knew the rules of it, and were more or less expert. But Joe Rudkin and Harry Winburn were the stars. 
the former stiff and sturdy, with legs like small towers, the latter pliant as india-rubber and quick as lightning. Day after day they stood foot to foot, and offered first one hand and then the other, and grappled and closed, and swayed and strained, till a well-aimed crook of the heel or a thrust of the loin took effect, and a fair backfall ended the matter. And Tom watched with all his eyes, and first challenged one of the less scientific, and threw him, and so one by one wrestled his way up to the leaders. Then, indeed, for months he had a poor time of it. It was not long, indeed, before he could manage to keep his legs against Job, for that hero was slow of offence, and gained his victories chiefly by allowing others to throw themselves against his immovable legs and loins. But Harry Winburn was undeniably his master, from the first clutch of hands when they stood up, down to the last trip which sent him on to his back on the turf, he felt that Harry knew more and could do more than he. Luckily, Harry's bright unconsciousness and Tom's natural good temper kept them from quarrelling, and so Tom worked on and on, and trod more and more nearly on Harry's heels, and at last mastered all the dodges and falls except one. This one was Harry's own particular invention and pet. He scarcely ever used it, except when hard-pressed, but then out it came, and as sure as it did, over went poor Tom. He thought about that fall at his meals, in his walks, when he lay awake in bed, in his dreams, but all to no purpose, until Harry one day, in his open way, suggested to him how he thought it should be met, and in a week from that time the boys were equal, save only the slight difference of strength in Harry's favour which some extra ten months of age gave. Tom had often afterwards reason to be thankful for that early drilling, and above all for having mastered Harry Winburn's fall. Besides their home games, on Saturdays the boys would wander all over the neighbourhood, sometimes to the downs, or up to the camp, where they cut their initials out in the springy turf, and watched the hawks soaring, and the peat bird as Harry Winburn called the grey plover, gorgeous in his wedding feathers. And so home, racing down the manger with many a roll among the thistles, or through Affington Wood to watch the fox-cubs playing in the green rides, sometimes to Rosy Brook, to cut long whispering reeds which grew there to make panpipes of, sometimes to Moor Mills, where was a piece of old forest land, with short browsed turf and tufted brambly thickets stretching under the oaks, amongst which rumour declared that a raven, last of his race, still lingered, or to the sand-hills, in vain quest of rabbits, and bird-nesting in the season, anywhere and everywhere. The few neighbours of the squire's own rank every now and then would shrug their shoulders as they drove or rode by a party of boys with Tom in the middle, carrying along bulrushes or whispering reeds, or great bundles of cowslip and meadow-sweet, or young starlings or magpies, or other spoil of wood, brook or meadow. And lawyer red-tape might mutter to squire straight back at the board that no good would come of the young browns if they were let run wild with all the dirty village boys, whom the best farmer's sons even would not play with. And the squire might reply with a shake of his head that his sons only mixed with their equals and never went into the village without the governess or a footman. But luckily squire Brown was full as stiff-backed as his neighbours, and so went on his own way, and Tom and his younger brothers, as they grew up, went on playing with the village boys, without the idea of equality or inequality, except in wrestling, running and climbing, ever entering their heads, as it doesn't till it's put there by jack-nasties or fine ladies-maids. 
I don't mean to say that it would be the case in all villages, but it certainly was so in this one. The village boys were full as manly and honest, and certainly purer, than those in a higher rank, and Tom got more harm from his equals in his first fortnight at a private school, where he went when he was nine years old, than he had had from his village friends from the day he left Charity's apron-strings. Great was the grief amongst the village schoolboys when Tom drove off with the squire one August morning to meet the coach on his way to school. Each of them had given him some little present of the best that he had, and his small private box was full of peg-taps, white marbles, called alley-tors in the vale, screws, bird's-eggs, whip-cord, jews-harps, and other miscellaneous boys' wealth. Poor Jacob Doodlecalf, in floods of tears, had pressed upon him with spluttering earnestness his lame pet hedgehog. He had always some poor broken-down beast or bird by him. But this Tom had been obliged to refuse, by the squire's order. He had given them all a great tea under the big elm in their playground, for which Madame Brown had supplied the biggest cake ever seen in our village, and Tom was really as sorry to leave them as they to lose him, but his sorrow was not unmixed with the pride and excitement of making a new step in life. And this feeling carried him through his first parting with his mother better than could have been expected. Their love was as fair and whole as human love can be, perfect self-sacrifice on the one side, meeting a young and true heart on the other. It is not within the scope of my book, however, to speak of family relations, or I should have much to say on the subject of English mothers, I, and of English fathers, and sisters, and brothers too. Neither have I room to speak of our private schools. What I have to say is about public schools, those much abused and much belauded institutions peculiar to England. So we must hurry through Master Tom's year at a private school as fast as we can. It was a fair average specimen, kept by a gentleman, with another gentleman as second master. But it was little enough of the real work they did, merely coming into school when lessons were prepared and all ready to be heard. The whole discipline of the school out of lesson hours was in the hands of the two ushers, one of whom was always with the boys in their playground, in the school, at meals, in fact at all times and everywhere, till they were fairly in bed at night. Now the theory of private schools is, or was, constant supervision out of school, therein differing fundamentally from that of public schools. It may be right or wrong, but if right, this supervision surely ought to be the especial work of the headmaster, the responsible person. The object of all schools is not to ram Latin and Greek into boys, but to make them good English boys, good future citizens, and by far the most important part of that work must be done, or not done, out of school hours. To leave it, therefore, in the hands of inferior men, is just giving up the highest and hardest part of the work of education. Were I a private schoolmaster, I should say, let who will hear the boys their lessons, but let me live with them when they are at play and rest. The two ushers at Tom's first school were not gentlemen, and very poorly educated, and were only driving their poor trade of usher to get such living as they could out of it. They were not bad men, but had little heart for their work, and of course were bent on making it as easy as possible. One of the methods by which they endeavoured to accomplish this was by encouraging tail-bearing, which had become a frightfully common vice in the school in consequence, and had sapped all the foundations of school morality. 
Another was, by favouring grossly the biggest boys, who alone could have given them much trouble, whereby those young gentlemen became most abominable tyrants, oppressing the little boys in all the small mean ways which prevail in private schools. Poor little Tom was made dreadfully unhappy in his first week by a catastrophe which happened to his first letter home. With huge labour he had, on the very evening of his arrival, managed to fill two sides of a sheet of letter-paper with assurances of his love for his dear mamma, his happiness at school, and his resolves to do all she would wish. This missive, with the help of the boy who sat at the desk next to him, also a new arrival, he managed to fold successfully, but this done they were sadly put to it for means of sealing. Envelopes were not then known, they had no wax, and dared not disturb the stillness of the evening schoolroom by getting up and going to ask the usher for some. At length Tom's friend, being of an ingenious turn of mind, suggested sealing with ink, and the letter was accordingly stuck down with a blob of ink, and duly handed by Tom on his way to bed to the housekeeper to be posted. It was not till four days afterwards that the good dame sent for him, and produced the precious letter and some wax, saying, "'Oh, Master Brown, I forgot to tell you before, but your letter isn't sealed.' Poor Tom took the wax in silence and sealed his letter, with a huge lump rising in his throat during the process, and then ran away to a quiet corner of the playground and burst into an agony of tears. The idea of his mother waiting day after day for the letter he had promised her at once, and perhaps thinking him forgetful of her, when he had done all in his power to make good his promise, was as bitter a grief as any which he had to undergo for many a long year. His wrath, then, was proportionately violent when he was aware of two boys, who stopped close by him, and one of whom, a fat gaby of a fellow, pointed at him and called him Young Mammy Sick whereupon Tom rose, and giving vent thus to his grief and shame and rage, smote his derider on the nose, and made it bleed, which sent that young worthy howling to the usher, who reported Tom for violent and unprovoked assault and battery. Hitting in the face was a felony punishable with flogging, other hitting only a misdemeanour, a distinction not altogether clear in principle. Tom, however, escaped the penalty by pleading primum tempus, and having written a second letter to his mother, enclosing some forget-me-nots which he picked on their first half-holiday walk, felt quite happy again, and began to enjoy vastly a good deal of his new life. These half-holiday walks were the great events of the week. The whole fifty boys started after dinner with one of the ushers for Hazeldown, which was distant some mile or so from the school. Hazeldown measured some three miles round, and in the neighbourhood were several woods full of all manner of birds and butterflies. The usher walked slowly round the down with such boys as liked to accompany him, the rest scattered in all directions, being only bound to appear again when the usher had completed his round and accompany him home. They were forbidden, however, to go anywhere except on the down and into the woods. The village had been especially prohibited, where huge bull's-eyes and unctuous toffee might be procured in exchange for coin of the realm. Various were the amusements to which the boys then betook themselves. At the entrance of the down there was a steep hillock, like the barrows of Tom's own downs. This mound was the weekly scene of terrific combats, at a game called by the queer name of mud-patties. The boys who played divided into sides under different leaders, and one side occupied the mound. 
Then, all parties having provided themselves with many sods of turf, cut with their bread and cheese knives, the side which remained at the bottom proceeded to assault the mound, advancing up on all sides under cover of a heavy fire of turfs, and then struggling for victory with the occupants, which was theirs as soon as they could, even for a moment, clear the summit, when they in turn became the besieged. It was a good rough dirty game, and of great use in counteracting the sneaking tendencies of the school. Then others of the boys spread over the downs, looking for the holes of bumblebees and mice, which they dug up without mercy, often, I regret to say, killing and skinning the unlucky mice, and, I do not regret to say, getting well stung by the bumblebees. Others went after butterflies and bird's eggs in their seasons, and Tom found on Hazeldown, for the first time, the beautiful little blue butterfly with golden spots on his wings, which he had never seen on his own downs, and dug out his first sand-martin's nest. This latter achievement resulted in a flogging, for the sand-martins built in a high bank close to the village, consequently out of bounds. But one of the bolder spirits of the school, who never could be happy unless he was doing something to which risk was attached, easily persuaded Tom to break bounds and visit the martin's bank. From whence, it being only a step to the toffee shop, what could be more simple than to go on there and fill their pockets? Or what more certain than that, on their return, a distribution of treasure having been made, the usher should shortly detect the forbidden smell of bull's-eyes, and a search ensuing, discover the state of the breeches' pockets of Tom and his ally? This ally of Tom's was indeed a desperate hero in the sight of the boys, and feared as one who dealt in magic, or something approaching thereto. Which reputation came to him in this wise? The boys went to bed at eight, and of course consequently lay awake in the dark for an hour or two, telling ghost stories by turns. One night, when it came to his turn, and he had dried up their souls by his story, he suddenly declared that he would make a fiery hand appear on the door, and to the astonishment and terror of the boys in his room, a hand, or something like it, in pale light, did then and there appear. The fame of this exploit having spread to the other rooms, and being discredited there, the young necromancer declared that the same wonder would appear in all rooms in turn, which it accordingly did, and the whole circumstances having been privately reported to one of the ushers, as usual, that functionary, after listening at the doors of the rooms, by a sudden descent caught the performer in his nightshirt, with a box of phosphorus in his guilty hand. Lucifer matches and all the present facilities for getting acquainted with fire were then unknown. The very name of phosphorus had something diabolic in it to the boy mind. So Tom's ally, at the cost of a sound flogging, earned what many older folk covet much, the very decided fear of most of his companions. He was a remarkable boy, and by no means a bad one. Tom stuck to him till he left, and got into many scrapes by so doing. But he was the great opponent of the tail-bearing habits of the school, and the open enemy of the ushers, and so worthy of all support. Tom imbibed a fair amount of Latin and Greek at the school, but somehow on the whole it didn't suit him, or he it, and in the holidays he was constantly working the squire to send him at once to a public school. Great was his joy then, when in the middle of his third half-year, in October 1830-something, a fever broke out in the village, 
and the master having himself slightly sickened of it, the whole of the boys were sent off at a day's notice to their respective homes. The squire was not quite so pleased as Master Tom to see that young gentleman's brown, merry face appear at home, some two months before the proper time, for the Christmas holidays. And so, after putting on his thinking-cap, he retired to his study and wrote several letters, the result of which was that, one morning at the breakfast-table, about a fortnight after Tom's return, he addressed his wife with, "'My dear, I have arranged that Tom shall go to rugby at once, for the last six weeks of this half-year, instead of wasting them in riding and loitering about home. It is very kind of the doctor to allow it. Will you see that his things are all ready by Friday, when I shall take him up to town, and send him down the next day by himself?' Mrs. Brown was prepared for the announcement, and merely suggested a doubt whether Tom were yet old enough to travel by himself. However, finding both father and son against her on this point, she gave in, like a wise woman, and proceeded to prepare Tom's kit for his launch into a public school. End of part one. Chapter three.